Welcome to the Neighboring Movement podcast, a podcast about the power and importance of neighboring. And today I am your host, Adam Barlow Thompson. I'm uh, the executive director at the Neighboring Movement and am excited to share with you an interview that I did with Majora Carter. Uh, this is one of those people in the world who is making just a tremendous difference. And I was amazed that she said yes, actually, to being a part of our podcast. She's done so many cool things. And I'm just going to read your her part of her bio. She's got so many um, credits to her name that it would it, it could go on and on. Uh, but Major Carter is a real estate developer, urban revitalization strategy consultant, MacArthur Fellow, and Peabody Award-winning broadcaster. She's responsible for the creation of numerous economic development, technology inclusion, and green infrastructure projects, policies, and job training and placement systems. And she is also a lecturer at the Princeton University's Keller Center. Carter applies talent retention consulting practice to reduce brain drain in American low-status communities. She's a first-hand experience pioneering sustainable economic development in one of America's most storied low-status communities, the South Bronx, as well as cities across North America and abroad. In 2017, she launched the Boogie Down Grind, a hip-hop-themed specialty coffee and craft beer spot at the first commercial third place in Hunt's Points section of the South Bronx since the mid-1980s. This venture also provides rare opportunity for local families to invest through SEC-approved online investment platforms. Her uh, ability to shepherd projects through seemingly conflicted socioeconomic currents has garnered her eight honorary PhDs, geez Louise, what a, that's amazing, and awards such as 100 Most Intriguing Entrepreneurs by Goldman Sachs, Silicon Valley, 100 by um, Business Insider, Liberty Medal for Lifetime Achievement by News Corps, and many, many more. Um, Majora was born and raised in the South Bronx. She um, is on featured in several TED Talks. She was actually one of the first TED Talks ever to be featured online. That's actually how I found her, uh, is through TED the TED series. And if you Google her name, you will find all sorts of amazing um, resources that she has out there. But now you get to hear her right here on our little podcast. So we're so excited and thankful for Majora Carter joining us on the Neighboring Movement Podcast. And without further ado, let's get into it. Well, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. And I always just like to start by just letting you introduce yourself and telling us kind of like what what, what is your work and what is your, how do you um, uh, go about your days uh, trying to make the world a better place? So. Oh, joy. Uh, so, hi. Thank you so much for having me. My name is Majora Carter, and I am a urban revitalization strategist and a real estate developer with a very particular approach to community development. And I'm also the author of the book, Reclaiming Your Community. You don't have to move out of your neighborhood to live in a better one because that the title kind of honestly encapsulates 
everything that I truly believe about the way that we should develop um, our communities, especially the ones that are where the folks born and raised to them are led to believe that you need to measure your success by how far you get away from them. Yes, yes, that's great. Yeah, that's great. So I've been pouring over your book. I first found you a while back on a TED Talk, and you've been on several of those. Um, and then I saw you again put, pop up on a post from Seth Kaplan, who is someone who we have, he'll actually be on the podcast in a little bit promoting a oh, new cool. book. And uh-huh. then um, and then I got your book and was like, oh, this is exactly what I need to do the work that I want to do. And I think a lot of the people listening to this podcast are struggling with the kind of things that you talk about in this book. And mm-hmm. so um, you, you, there's a, in the book has a lot of good backstory of how you got to this place, but what, what was your motivation in putting this into a book form and trying to share mm. it with the world in that way? Ah, <laughs> well, the actual motivation was the pandemic and literally having nothing to do. <laughs> um, but I also wanted it to be sort of like literally kind of a rallying cry you know, to mm-hmm. folks who truly believe that our communities are wonderful and valuable because we're in it and that there are tools and strategies that we could deploy that mm-hmm. show others the same thing. And that was really why I wanted to do it um, because, you know, I, I guess I wanted to expand, you know, the community of crazy, you know, folks who really believe this like deep in our souls. And uh, it's been the most amazing thing, you know, to hear from folks about how they've used it, you know, how they felt validated, you know, how they've like, you know, kept property, you know, in their family and how they're building in neighborhoods that, and and building the kind of things in neighborhoods that truly, you know, make folks go like, wait a second, we've got, we're, we're powerful, we're beautiful, we're strong, and we have the capacity to build the kind of community that we want. And that just, just literally soothes my soul like every single day because mm-hmm. um yeah yeah so I feel really good about that yeah I I totally feel that I think one of the things that um I you know working in a in a low status community for a long period of time I've and being kind of a bridge between the folks in the neighborhood and the people who are developers and outside of the neighborhood and have like opinions about the neighborhood Mm-hmm. whenever I go and talk to those people, one of the first things, and I say like, hey, we're trying to redevelop this area of our city, this neighborhood. Uh-huh. They always have ideas, these outsiders. Mm-hmm. They always have yeah. ideas of yeah. the kinds of things that our neighborhood would just love. Mm-hmm. And they're usually <laughs> like, like we should, you know, get a halfway house in there. We should find a, <laughs> we should get a health clinic in there. We should do uh... And they ha- it's like all these well-intentioned things or even on a, like on a smaller scale, there's this suburban church that always comes and serves free hot dogs in the neighborhood. Uh-huh. Um, and like, you know, all of those people who are like, what is your message to them and how do we help them like be helpful? And this is a terrible story and sort of slightly related to this. Okay. But whenever I have... um. You know, because right now, I, I so just to, I don't know if your audience knows the, what low status communities mean. Yeah, so maybe the background on that, yeah. 
okay, so just to, just so that y'all you know know, so the low status communities is a term that that we use where when most people are talking about um, you know communities, they refer to them as poor, low income, or underprivileged, or something like that. And but we use low status because it status. Mm -hmm. implies that something's larger is at work, you know, that inequality, you know, is just a fact of life, you know, and that these are the places, but when it comes to community, those are the places where schools or, or, or public health, um, air quality, water quality, parks and trees, food options, career options um, are worse than in other parts of the same town. And then, you know, they could be anywhere and um, think about the communities near wherever you're from or might be in. So they could be inner cities, they could be um, reservations, they could be all white neighborhoods, you know, in Rust Belt towns where industry mm -hmm. is long gone, um, you know, they and they are all over the world. And What's really what binds them all together is the fact that bright kids, whether they're academically or artistically or um, even athletically, you know, inclined, they're expected to measure success by how far they get away from those neighborhoods. Yeah. And and that's really what low status means, you know, when, when, right. when we're talking about it here. So I just want to be clear about that. But I love I but, love too that you include it because you are in New York. Mm hmm. And. Um, a lot of our audience is from Kansas, right? Mm -hmm. There, there's some. There may not feel like a ton of similarities, but in Kansas, where those are like, like poor rural white. Kids, yeah, absolutely. Right? They, and absolutely. Yep. The kids know I. If I'm going to be successful, I got to get out of this small town. Exactly. Yeah. It it trans it does it transcends and like actual place. So it's not yes. just it could be urban, rural, exurban, suburban. You yeah. name it. It could just all of that. You know, and it also it also transcends race as well. You know, because those because those things it's like it's it's independent of race or geography. It's mm. really clear. But you know where you are when you're there. And people <laughs> on the inside yeah. and the outside of those neighborhoods both feel the same way. Like. That's the place you, you you want to get away from, or we should save people from, or blah blah blah. And it's just like, hmm, isn't that interesting? But yeah. um, but here's the thing. So, and, but you'll often find in many of those places, um, you know, because we see it's only two kinds of real estate development there. There's the there's um what we what's commonly known gentrification, which displaces the people that were there in the first place. Um, you know, for and there could be a whole host of reasons why that happens, but it's essentially it's the reurbanization of those areas with different folks and mm -hmm. that are responding to different market forces, right? And yeah. um, and some of that, you know, is many of us in, in those neighborhoods who don't see the value in them and will sell our properties early and cheap. Right. Mm -hmm. And then I'll go into I'll later go into the other other type of poverty level economic maintenance. But we'll talk about that later. But this one is so if we're selling our properties early and cheap when a predatory speculator calls mm -hmm. up or post or sends a little flyer, or puts a little fire under your door, I'll buy your house for cheap or even post those things up in the neighborhood. Right. And expecting people to call. They're expecting people to call because they don't know the value yes. of their own communities. Yes. And that's and they're usually right because people don't know. <laughs> yeah. And so my favorite they've my been favorite, told for their whole life that they're all their whole lives. Exactly. Exactly. So my one of my favorite things to do when predatory speculators call, because they'll literally they'll figure out like, I mean, I don't have a listed phone number, but they figured out how like exactly, you know, no, I'm a property owner in this neighborhood, which is actually start definitely that it's not 
quite gentrifying in like a, a typical way, but, but you're seeing people sell quickly. You know, we mm. definitely were impacted by the 2008 um, housing crisis. Um, you know, the banks were too big to fail, but the little people lost out pretty, a lot of stuff. Okay. So we've seen that, but anyway, it's, so it's still on, on that trajectory, you know, the mm. number of homeowners just in this neighborhood alone has gone from about 20 some percent, you know, um, less than 20 years ago down to less than seven. Most mm. of those deals are of predatory speculation that happens here. So when a predatory speculator calls me and they're always really nice <laughs> and just like, Hey, you know, we've been looking at your, you know, in your neighborhood and we, you know, we think that we've got a great offer for you. Uh-huh. And I'm like, oh, really? What are you, what are you thinking? And they'll always give some lowball number. Uh-huh. And I'm like, you know what? But they'll always say like, you know, but we think that there's some great opportunities, you know, and we want to help you out by like taking that property off your hands and we're willing to pay you top dollar. And I'm like, wow, well, if you, if there's such opportunities there, you know what? I want in on that deal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> how about, you know, how about we joint venture on that? I never get hangups as quickly as when I do that. <laughs> where it's just like, no, no, no. So if you're working for your investors, you're like, look, I'm an investor. Like I've got the property you want. Yeah. Just took acquisition off your hand. Maybe we should partner because I'd yeah. love to know what you're talking about. And they just like disappear. Those people <laughs> I never hear from again because I keep track of them. And um, so to your, your question, like what do you do to folks who have all these ideas? Just say, yeah. you know what? We do too. Yeah. How about, you know, how about we, we talk about that because you know what, you're right. You have a whole bunch of assets that you're willing to deploy. And maybe if you're really interested, like you seem to be, you know, in, in actually helping to create the kind of community that makes sense for everybody, how about we work together and maybe we can learn something and you yeah. could learn something and you will definitely learn something from us. <laughs> but just putting, but just, I think putting ourselves, you know, in the situation where we're like trying to understand the game uh-huh. that's how you learn to be a part of it. Yeah. And it's, and it's, I'm not saying it's easy because believe me, I'm still learning as I go. Um, mm-hmm. It is definitely harder to be a community-based developer, you know, who's yeah. literally coming from the inside and who doesn't have the kind of, of, um, you know, support systems, you know, that all those folks have the holding mm-hmm. companies and, you know, the developers that have been doing this for a long time, you know, with full, and especially in low status communities, because there's a whole nonprofit industrial complex as well as a government in philanthropic or you know groups that have been supporting them for eons. Whereas folks like us, not so much, because we're the, yeah. supposed to be the recipients of the largesse that they you know dole out. Which yeah. which when you think about it, I mean, you know, all that you know, whether it's government, philanthropic, private, blah blah blah, money that goes into low status communities. Um, you know, situations really haven't gotten better. Right, right. You know, and I think that's the reality. It's like health outcomes mm-hmm. are still bad, educational, attainment, all of those things are really still very problematic, you know, in low status communities in this country. term that you use um that i don't know that maybe you coined it even so you the non the nonprofit industrial complex is one of the things that you talk about and i'd love for you just to give us a little bit more insight on what that is and how it's like what's what's happening with that 
Yeah. Oh, I definitely did not coin that term. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember the first time I heard it, but it was just like, oh my gosh. Um, yeah, that, like, just oh, like a that feels, yeah, it's like, that's exactly what it is. Yeah. I yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, because it's like, it's, it's an industrial complex. I mean, um, yeah. you know, Eisenhower talked about it, you know, in sort of right. military beware right. because it's, because essentially an industrial complex is something that exists to perpetuate itself. In yes. the case of the military industrial complex, the only way it's going to keep on going is if we keep manufacturing wars. And right. guess what? Somebody's going to do well. So the thing is with, with the nonprofit industrial complex, which is such a weird thing because the nonprofit status, you know, as a as a part of, of our government was mm -hmm. literally only designed, right, you know, to make it easier for folks that were doing public good works and services and just to make it a little easier so that they weren't paying taxes but somehow or another it's become this like moralistic thing that doesn't necessarily have anything to do with like actually solving the things that it says it's supposed to right like, how many times have you heard we're going to work ourselves out of a job but 20 some years later you're still doing the same on job and the same exact things over and over and over again. I'm like, mm. yeah, like seriously, y'all like this is not helpful. Like just and I, I just it just drives me crazy. And not to say that there that there's no room for nonprofits. There, of course there is. Sure. And there's some that are incredibly effective. And, and unfortunately, while we still have like fundamental, you know, structural, you know, inequality that results in all of the horrible things, the social ills that we still deal with, whether it's, you know, health and education, racism, mm -hmm. all of that stuff, mm -hmm. you know, yeah, somebody's going needs to help deal with that. But after a while, we have to be recognizing some are more effective than others and yeah. some just exist to perpetuate themselves. And we should be doing that hard work. And most of us don't. Um, yeah. So all that to say is, you know, it's a nonprofit that literally exists to continue, um, you know, the kind, and I think especially within, within relation to, to low status communities, you know, yeah. if the, if the, the cycle of concentrated poverty continues in the same exact way, decade after decade after decade, mm -hmm. then we have to ask ourselves, is, is that what we should be doing? Yeah. The same thing. No, no, no. Like how different have things, have they changed? And have, have our approaches, have our tactics changed? And if they haven't, then we should actually do the hard work of reexamining ourselves. And most of us, yes. again, I mean, as an industry, have yeah. not. Right, right. Yeah, my, one of our lead, one of the people who we really appreciate in that space is Cormac Russell. And he always says that he, once nonprofits ask the question, would the people you're serving, if given, would they take the budget that you're using in their community and purchase the same thing that you're offering? Uh -huh. Most often they wouldn't. They'd use right. that money to do things that help them actually grow their own wealth. And, right. and it's the hard part of that is you can kind of come off like an asshole if you're not careful because people are like, you don't want to feed people and clothe people. And I'm like, no, no, no. That's not the problem. The problem is exactly what you're saying of like these services have been available in our neighborhood for generations right. and they're yeah. not they're 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 not having the impact that, that we uh -huh. really want with people. Right. 
You want to hear a funny story about? I love funny stories. <laughs> it's actually kind of tragic, but oh, um, great. <laughs> but it's tragic, funny, and it sort of shows like how crazy I think we are. You know, it, uh-huh. it, it, even though I'm not, I not part of the nonprofit industrial complex anymore, but I still feel connected to it in a weird sure. way. It's like you know, guys, we can do better than than what we're doing. Um, yeah. But. So, you know, early, actually, during, you know, sort of like early in the pandemic, remember when the community fridge, you know, thing was yep. happening like everywhere. So yep. someone actually, you know, got a, you know, some, some, some corporate money to do a community fridge. And we, you know, at my spot were able in that we also were like, also um, there was a, a, an older gentleman who actually ran a, a fruit stand there. So we just like let him use our space to store his stuff so he wouldn't have to drag it in and out, whatever. And, and so we, and so this guy came to us and said, Hey, you know, we'd love to have a community bridge, you know, nearby. Cause it was very well, well pedestrian traffic area. And he's like, and we were like, great. And so there was an artist who was doing the refrigerator, you know, it was like making it pretty. And then when, when said artist discovered that it was mine, that the building was mine, uh-huh. she was like, I don't want my work represented here and we need to take the fridge. Yeah. Because to her, I was this gentrifier and this whole project was gentrifying the neighborhood. My neighborhood, my family's been here since the 1940s. And it's and, like, and, because and, you were making money because. And helping other people make money. Right. Somehow or another, it was just wrong. And this it is was where just wrong. This is what's, this is the tragic part of it is that when in a low status in neighborhood starts making money for themselves they do mm-hmm. put nonprofits out of business like i mean that's the thing like nonprofits won't be needed so there is there is a natural like threat that i think nonprofits feel then from that uh and whether the, i mean that I, again i do think they have good intentions but then mm-hmm. that causes them to act in ways that do not help the community yeah. they're trying to help yeah you've gotten a lot of flack for your work over the years oh yeah oh yeah tell us a little about your haters and like how you've been able to not stop because i think a lot of people would yeah well first of all i call my haters the majority part of fan club because (laughs) if you're spending that much time like obsessing and plotting and planning over somebody there's got to be a little bit of attraction up in there as far as i'm concerned so, um, you know, definitely the Cat William, you know, school, you know, I don't know if you know the comedian Cat Williams, who's just like, you got some haters, you got 14 haters, by the end of the summer, you need to have another 14. So just because <laughs> it means, and I'm just like, okay, like, okay, Cat. Um, but, but, you know, uh, it's fear is, uh-huh. I think, of the defining character you know, within our, within low status communities, you know, people Mm. truly, you know, we're, we're, we're so, so many of us, I believe are so, um, you know, we can't fail and, you know, we don't have the luxury of failing fast and then getting up and doing it again. And so, and we've been led to believe, I think, you know, the impact of white supremacy, which impacts white people too. And, and, yeah. I mean, let's just put that out there, Um, you know, literally kind of make puts people in boxes. And so and 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 we're led to believe there's a little bit of safety in it, even even if it's not what we really want, at least it's it's the devil we know. 
So when anybody, you know, comes out and goes, no, I don't, you know, let's try something a little bit different. Mm-hmm. It makes, I think it it leads other folks to believe that there's a level of vulnerability. Like, you know, mm-hmm. here, you know, in, in many low status neighborhoods, you know, in, in inner cities, it's more like you protest against stuff. But, and that's, I think, an accepted strategy. Yeah. But, and I'm not saying we shouldn't be protesting against things that need to be yeah. protested against. But I also think that the other part of that is like, what are we building? And if we're not actually building something that creates the kind of health, in particular economic wealth and health and well-being for our communities, then we're always going to be stuck in this place that, you know, other folks have, have didn't have to you know, even experience. It's like mm-hmm. we're in like there's a reason why there's a wealth gap, you know, and there's a racial wealth gap. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a reason why there's all these different, different various types of, you know, of discrimination that literally made it more difficult for our children to actually be in good schools and to learn and mm-hmm. to have healthier health outcomes. So much of it is related to how our communities are planned, the level of economic empowerment that happens in those property ownership, business development. So I'm like, we don't, I'm not trying to like reinvent anything. There yeah. are amazing tools that exist that have been denied to us. Yeah. And how to, and let's just figure out ways to make sure we get some of it so that yeah. we can do right by our own communities. That's all I've tried to do. I mean, I'm, it's like, I'm a broken record. I'm not that smart. And I could, all I know is that I know it worked in a bunch of different ways. And if things, you know, worked well for, for white folks, you know, if we, if we all had, had the GI bill, if we all had social security from the very beginning, you know, yeah. Things would be if we all weren't financially discriminated against. Yeah. Things would be very different. Yeah. And I think that that's what we need to be fighting for. So, um, right. you know, I get that people, you know, to, to folks who have, um, you know, a limited toolbox, you know, mm-hmm. and if it's just a hammer in there, everything looks like a nail and you use that hammer to strike, to, to strike down anything that doesn't appear to yeah. be something that you understand. That's yeah. an intense. And so, so in your, in your own life, like, I'm just curious, like, what did you do to not become a bitter, angry person? Oh, I am a bitter, angry person. <laughs> <laughs> I oh, just perfect. play one nice one sometimes. No, I, I seriously, if, if, and, and I can tell when my spiritual life is out of whack, it's uh-huh. bad. It is. I mean, you know, and, and look, you know, I, as a follower of the way mm-hmm. most of the time you know um because <laughs> which means i suck like everybody else does um yeah. you know like jesus is you know like he took everything everything yeah. and was just like and still loved us and that's yeah. that's the example so i try and often fail uh-huh. you know to be that kind and 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 that loving and to remember it's like you know my the biggest commandments love God, you know, which I can do, but that's, I'm like, okay, I can fall <laughs> flat on my face. and like, I know who's who yeah, that's you, yeah. but you know, the love my neighbor. Well, the loving is, is easy, but the liking part. Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh God, really uh, seriously. <laughs> but then, you know, like Martin Luther King said, he said, you know, you do have to love your neighbor. You know, yeah. God didn't say you have to like him. But yeah. I struggle with that sometimes. Yeah, I do. Wow. But but that... it is. It's just like the, but but the real thing that keeps me going is I get to see you know the fruits of my labor. 
Yes. And and I get to see other people enjoying it. I see how their lives have changed as a, from my earliest work, you know, whether we ran mm-hmm. a green job, college, you know, green college job training and placement system, building a, you know, a now a nationally recognized waterfront park, you know, acquiring, you know, buildings that were just literally just these horrible places and transforming them into, you know, places where beauty and, and love and, and hope mm-hmm. prospers, you know, those type of things make me go, yeah. I, I'm okay. You know, this is just a yeah. momentary setback when I'm like in a, when I'm in a real big funk, um, yeah. like I am today, but, you know, talking to people like you make me go, <laughs> yay, I'm in a good spot. So uh, I appreciate yeah. you. Okay, so we want to. I'm going to shift towards kind of the final stretch here, and I want to get real practical for people who might be like, I've thought about trying some of these things, but like, I don't have capital, or I don't yeah. know how to like. It's, it feels like a big risk, mm-hmm. and I don't want to like bankrupt myself or my family. Like, what is what is the practical advice that you give to people who yeah. are like just imagining themselves in these spaces, asking I mean- for a friend? Yeah. Or yeah. myself. <laughs> okay. <laughs> of course. You know, look, I started this work and I was making $10 an hour, um, you know, you know, working a 20 hour week job. Granted, sometimes I work like 70 at this, at this. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm sure that probably sounds very familiar to yeah. a lot of folks. And, um, you know, but I think early on, like the thing that was most important was actually talking to folks about Mm -hmm. what they found important and healing, you know, in their own communities. So just being able to have those conversations to start and recognizing that not everything requires an enormous amount of money. Like sometimes it can be as simple, you know, as honestly cleaning up after your dog. Mm -hmm. And showing people like this is an important thing to do when you love your own neighborhood, you know, or, mm-hmm. you know, building out some kind of, of whether it's a, a some kind of program that just like recognizes that people that the getting that communities getting together is an important step. Because like, you know, because, yes, I do think that people should learn, you know, how to see themselves as developers in their own right, regardless of where they are. I don't care mm-hmm. how much money they have, because when you have that kind of mindset, where yeah. it's just like, no, I have I, I have some ideas on what our communities actually can be. And the more you socialize that, the harder it is for you to feel as though you have no power. Yeah. Because that is the first step. You know, and then, you know, you can think about like, you know, do you want to, you know, is there a group that's doing the work, you know, doing the research to see if this is there somebody doing what you think is important. And if they are support them, I don't care if it's a person, I don't care if it's an organization, you know, but, you know, there is. um, There is definitely some strength in numbers, but also Mm -hmm. recognize sometimes you don't need that many, you know, my earliest stuff was like, 
me and a couple people, I think mostly looking back on it, they just felt sorry for me <laughs> or, you know, worked with me because it, because my mother was, was, was popular. And it was just like, Oh, I know your mom, you know, and it was just like, whatever, you know, and now, you know, there's, there, I think sometimes folks still do that, but, yeah, you know, yeah. but recognize there's still, I don't care how you get to people, but they need to know that you're serious and yeah. fun and want to see things happen. So I think that's really the biggest part of what we can do here. Yeah, that's yeah. great. That's great. And if people want to know more about you and find your resources, where can they go do that? Yeah. So I, um, we're on Instagram, you know, at Majora Carter. Um, and then also like you can follow any of my, my projects, which is, a. Uh, uh, at Bronxlandia, like if you, if you watch Portlandia, it's yeah. Bronxlandia. But nice. it was a whole, yeah, which I love it. That's our event hall. It's just super fun. And then um, Boogie Down Grind, actually Boogie Down Grind, which is our cafe. Um, and then also I'm on LinkedIn. Um, not as much as I should be, but I can, should do more of that. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, but, yeah. Do the work in your neighborhood. That's the stuff that matters. So, yes. um, and, and if people just Google you, there's so many awesome resources you've put out a ton of great content and yeah and, and we're doing course, more of that now mm-hmm. and of course they should go buy your book reclaiming your yes. community um Ta-da. that's available in all sorts of places and so check that out um and support your local bookstore and see if they Please. can order it for you uh yep. I, that's always a good way to do it and so i just want to say thank you again and i mean I know it does sometimes shout, feel like shouting into a void, but just know like I'm in that void and I heard your voice and it's, it made me feel like I'm not alone and I can do some of this work. And so, um, so that's really helpful and I appreciate you so much. So um, we'll plan on being in touch more. I would love to, you know, keep, we'll, we'll keep looking to see what you're doing and if there's ways that we can, uh, partner or be a part of the same conversation we'd love that so uh, oh we are a part of the same conversation yes so yes. just we are birds of a feather and now awesome. we just gotta we gotta spread it spread the gospel yes. well friends i hope that you enjoyed this interview with majora carter she uh, really is a light in this world and be sure to check out all of the things that she's doing. It's amazing work and we could not be more grateful for her. So we uh, at The Neighboring Movement have lots going on. If you want to check out more of our stuff, always feel free to find us on social media, uh, LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all the things. Um, and also check us out at neighboringmovement.org, where we have lots of free resources, including now on our front page, the Eight Front Door Challenge, where you can get a strategy and tips to meet the neighbors that are closest to you and gather them um, for a little neighborhood gathering. So uh, until next time, folks, happy neighboring.